And now there's just been so much research on it that the, the studies are super clear. They're, they're valid, reliable studies, and the data is just really consistent over a long period of time now that emotional intelligence is kind of this mother skill that predicts all the rest of your, your success. In fact, we know that EQ, that's the shorthand for emotional intelligence, it's twice as predictive of performance than traditional intelligence or IQ. And we know that it accounts for 80 to 90% of the competencies that differentiate your top performers. The cool thing is you can learn emotional intelligence. It is a skill and you can learn it like anything else. So there's several studies that show if you give EQ training to salespeople, your sales can go through the roof. You can increase your market share when you teach your staff and your managers this. The military has used it. Major pharmaceutical companies have used it. It's just consistently showing that if you help people learn these skills, they're better at managing themselves. And more importantly, for those in manager and leadership roles where they create the experience for everybody else, when they're emotionally intelligent, everything about the organization shifts. It just creates um, a really healthy environment for people to thrive. there folks this is your host with the most Kenny Vaughn I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena I am tremendously excited today folks because we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Britt Andriata Dr. Andriata how are you doing today I'm doing great Kenny please call me Britt I'm so excited to connect with you and your listeners all right, well, well, Britt, before we dive in, you know I got to brag on you for a second because you have just had a tremendously successful career. You've been recognized for your work in the HR space. I know you've been a chief learning officer. You started your own company. You, you're a self-described neuroscience geek. We are honored to have you in our presence today. Super excited to dive into some of the work that you've done. But I actually stumbled upon you through LinkedIn Learning. And I took your course, Leading with Emotional Intelligence. So would love to kind of surround our conversation around that theme. Before we dive into emotional intelligence and some of the work that you've done in that space, would love if you could just start by sharing a little bit more about yourself, your personal background, and what led you into this field in the first place. Sure. You know, I what I'm currently doing is I'm running my own company and I'm all about science-based learning solutions that help solve today's workplace challenges. And I'm all about potential. You know, I really believe that people and organizations have a lot of untapped potential. And I believe that neuroscience in particular gives us a lot of really critical information that helps us unlock that potential. So that's kind of currently what I'm doing. You know, my 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 career to this point has been a couple twists and turns that were just perfect accidents that led me to where I am today. I'm an author and a speaker, and I also consult with a lot of organizations around the world. In terms of how I got into emotional intelligence, you know, honestly, it started in my 30s when I started having crippling panic attacks, and they were so bad, I almost became agoraphobic and unable to leave the house because it was just happening so often and if you've ever lived through a panic attack you just know that it's just such a frightening experience and it impacted my work you know for a while i couldn't go to work i certainly couldn't take vacations i lost my everyday happiness and so i went into therapy and we unearthed that what was really happening to me was all these repressed memories of childhood abuse were coming to the surface that was a really fun time let me tell you <laughs> but thank goodness for therapy and the ability to kind of unpack that so I was simultaneously in this intensive therapy while I was completing my PhD. And I realized that I was actually learning more about the human condition and how we all kind of navigate the world in my therapy sessions than I was actually learning in my PhD program. And what I found was when I combined them, when I took these theories and models of leadership and bringing out the best in others and I coupled it with what happens when we've been traumatized, what happens when you know we're not our best selves, it came together and kind of created this, this secret sauce. So that's where I first learned about things like the amygdala hijack and triggers. And I started looking into the brain and biology of it all. And that became 
a fascinating journey and now I'm an author and a speaker where I kind of combine what we know about humans with what happens to us every day at work. And it's been a really fun journey to kind of talk about those things. So as someone who has also survived a panic attack or two in my day, I appreciate you having the vulnerability to just share that with our listeners. And I, w- I would love if you could just unpack a little bit further this experience of working towards your PhD, also going through counseling, seeing the academic standpoint, but then also seeing it play out real time in your own life. Would you mind just sharing a little bit more as to what that stage of life was like for you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, at the time I was already doing some consulting work and working with leaders and and having them, you know, have conversations about what was happening with each other in the workplace. And what I saw was as I was applying traditional leadership models, we would only get so far. And then I'm observing these people in the room together and I'm like, oh my gosh, they all have these wounds, these old wounds, and they're triggering each other and nobody's talking about that piece. And so I found myself kind of doing what my therapist was doing and saying, hey, let's unpack this a little bit. You know, where does that feeling come from for you? And what's your history of this feeling? And have you felt it before with other people? And I I found myself kind of having those more vulnerable personal conversations. And inevitably somewhere in there was the secret sauce. It was just this magic moment where people all of a sudden realized, oh, this is bigger than this moment. I'm not actually mad at this person for this. I'm, they're, they're pushing a bunch of my buttons. That's why I'm such a fan of Brene Brown's work. I think she's done such a service to the world in bringing forward conversations around vulnerability and shame because that's inevitably what I see in the boardroom too. So from, from that experience, and it kind of was happening on the fly, but authentically shifting the conversation in pretty profound ways that then started my commitment to doing a deeper dive into the research of it all and trying to bring some of these tools and strategies you know mindfulness is amazing as a strategy or skill we all should have it only makes things better no matter what your life is like and what your goals are so yeah you know it it, it was an accident that was uh just that eye-opening moment of insight and it shifted everything about my work moving forward. So now I approach every problem with, okay, let's see what's happening. Now let's look at the biology of it and people's history and see where the real stuff is. And when you get to the real meat of the issue, the real heart of the issue, everything's transformative. Like it's kind of mind blowing how transformative it can be. And to be in the room and now to create learning solutions that, 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 literally set up that transformative moment it's just it's just such a i don't know i just feel so grateful to be at the heart of this and get to witness it on a daily basis it's pretty it's pretty amazing so what i love about what you just shared is the it's the practical application and i think what's so cool about hearing how you ended up in this space is you had to live it you had to see it play out you had to experience it for yourself and i think that's been one of the coolest things for me to see is oftentimes the people who step into this space with the most passion, with the most vigor, it's because they've seen firsthand in their own personal lives the impact of the work that they're championing. So I think that was really cool. I'm a huge Brene Brown fan as well, so love the fact that we were able to tie in some of the work that she's doing around vulnerability. I think this is a really cool segue because... I anticipate what your answer to this response may be, but I would love if we could unpack this some more for our listeners. And the question is, you know, quote unquote, soft skills, we've, we've heard about these for several years to include emotional intelligence, but they've long been overlooked. They've been undervalued in corporate America. I think the tone of that conversation is starting to shift, Mm -hmm. but for those leaders, for those organizations who might not quite see the full value proposition in tapping into emotional intelligence. Can you kind of share some more insights based off of your research, based off of your learnings? Yeah, absolutely. So Daniel Goleman is the researcher who's kind of the father of emotional intelligence. 
And he piggybacked on the work of Howard Gardner from Harvard who identified these multiple intelligences. There's different ways we can be smart. School measures two of the nine. It measures our logical mathematical smartness and it measures our linguistic smartness. But there's a lot of other ways to be intelligent and two of those are intrapersonal, meaning I am tuned into myself and my feelings and I can manage myself and interpersonal, between people, that we can build healthy relationships. So Daniel Goleman focused in on intra and interpersonal and built kind of this concept of emotional intelligence. There's kind of four quadrants that lead to 20 competencies. And, and now there's just been so much research on it that this, the studies are super clear. They're, they're valid, reliable studies, and the data is just really consistent over a long period of time now that emotional intelligence is kind of this mother skill that predicts all the rest of your, your success. In fact, we know that EQ, that's the shorthand for emotional intelligence, it's twice as predictive of performance than traditional intelligence or IQ. And we know that it accounts for 80 to 90% of the competencies that differentiate your top performers. We've all been able to look at the people who are most successful, and you can probably name those people in your life. They just seem to be really tuned in to themselves. They were really good at managing relationships. They could navigate change. They could make their way through distress. They were resilient. They were really sensitive and aware of difference and diversity and inclusion. They were already doing these things. So people can be can have some innate emotional intelligence and, and they're just always set up for success. The cool thing is you can learn emotional intelligence. It is a skill and you can learn it like anything else. So what's cool is now that, you know, organizations are bringing emotional intelligence training in, they're just seeing incredible return on investment, meaning that whatever you spent on the training more than pays off. So typically, you know, you're really excited if you have an ROI of just a few percentage points. And, and the ROI on EQ training can be up to a thousand percent, meaning you're getting way more yields than what you spent on it. So there's several studies that show that, you know, if you give high, if you give EQ training to salespeople, your sales can go through the roof. You can increase your market share when you teach your staff and your managers this. The military has used it. Major pharmaceutical companies have used it. It's just consistently showing that if you help people learn these skills, they're better at managing themselves. And more importantly, for those in manager and leadership roles where they create the experience for everybody else, when they're emotionally intelligent, everything about the organization shifts. It just creates um, a really healthy environment for people to thrive. And this is why you can look across an organization and you can see the leaders who are emotionally intelligent, the teams underneath them are doing great. And then right next door, someone's completely falling apart because their manager or their leader is missing the skill set. So what I really love about this comment, first and foremost, is you just re-emphasizing that emotional intelligence is a skill or an attribute that can be learned. Because I think oftentimes it's easy to look at a peer, look at a coworker and just say, hey, this person is just in tune. Like, I don't have that attribute, I don't have that gift, and to keep moving. And so to hear you say, no, this is something that organizationally we can invest in, individually we can, we can kind of seek out those resources to, to help ourselves on this journey. I think that's super important for our listeners to just kind of keep top of mind. And then the second piece that I really loved about what you shared is from an organizational standpoint, these are skills and attributes that trickle and permeate throughout the various parts of the organization. So when you do have that leader, when you do have that people manager, when you do have that influencer, who exudes a high degree of emotional intelligence or a low degree of emotional intelligence, the likelihood that that's gonna be replicated within the organization is significantly increased. And so I think it just doubles down on the importance of the message that you're sharing, that this is something that needs to be top of mind. Whether you're in a leadership position or an individual contributor, this is absolutely a topic that should be top of mind uh, for those of us in the workplace. Absolutely. And one of the things that I, th I think we do a disservice, you know, the term soft skills is used all the time. I try not to use that term. I call them people skills or power skills because there's no, yeah, there's no aspect of business that isn't 
created, driven, all of that by people, whether they're your customers, your managers, your employees. And right now, you know, we're in the middle of this great resignation where people are leaving in droves. And, you know, it's largely due to burnout. Everyone's just exhausted from the pandemic and trying to bring some change in their life. But it's also because people have been enduring work environments that weren't healthy or where they didn't feel respected or they didn't have the best boss. And everyone's just like, you know what? I don't want to put up with that anymore. I'm going to go seek something better. So what we're also seeing is people are starting to realize I need to be in a healthy environment and I'm, I'm not going to put up with being in an unhealthy environment. So it's really a call to leaders around the world. If you're losing people right now, and more importantly, if you can't hire new people in, you need to take a hard look at your culture because there's something about it that's not working. And emotional intelligence training is the fastest way to turn it around and it will pay off pretty quickly. Mm. I love how you brought in that, the, the statistic as well in terms of the great resignation. I think the Bureau of Labor Statistics was saying that around 4 million people either quit or transferred their jobs this past August, which is, a, in all time high since they've been recording that statistic. So yeah, it's um, a two decade high and we're on our fifth straight month of it. And other studies are predicting in the next year, anywhere between 50 and 95% of the workforce is going to change jobs. I mean, it's just a phenomenal change and some people are resigning. Other people are revolting, which is why we're seeing an increase in labor strikes right now is that particularly a lot of, you know, frontline workers, I put in air quotes, blue collar workers, some of these folks that have been doing the hardest jobs in the most unsafe conditions, they are just saying no more. We can't, we can't do this anymore. We can't treat us like this anymore. So I think it, we're seeing the entire world of work shift before our very eyes. And I'm really hopeful that it's shifting in the right direction because the power is on the side of the people right now and their ability to say, I don't wanna work for a place that doesn't make me feel valued and treat me with respect. Mm. So I think we have firmly established the importance and the timeliness of this conversation. I want to give I want to give our listeners some tools now because I think I really enjoy taking your LinkedIn learning course. For those of y'all who haven't checked it out yet, the course is called Leading with Emotional Intelligence. It's one of the most highly viewed courses on LinkedIn learning. So shout out to you for that success there. <laughs> But one of the things that, that I love that you broke down in your course in regards to emotional intelligence is the three components leaders are responsible for. And I think this is a great segue based off what we just got done sharing. It's the, uh, the responsibility for self, the responsibility for others, and the responsibility for the organization. So can you take a little bit of a deeper dive as in how someone builds a deeper sense of self-awareness across these three pillars? Yeah, it's a great question. So self is really like you with you, you know, just are you taking time to engage in self-reflection? And that can look a lot of different ways. You know, it could be just taking time to journal and get in touch with what you're feeling and what you're thinking. It can take the form of a mindfulness practice, you know, meditation or yoga. I mean, you can wash dishes mindfully, but what mindfulness is, is just stopping and being in the present and taking a little bit of that observer stance and watching your thoughts kind of scatter across your brain. And you start off, you know, trying to have silence and pay attention to your breathing, but very quickly you're like, oh, the to-do list and the birthday party and the dog and the groceries and all of that. And all mindfulness is, is going, oh, I started thinking all those thoughts again. Let me come back to this present moment and pay attention to the sound in the room or my breath. And then within a few seconds, grocery store, dog, da, 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 da. okay, wait a minute, I gotta do it again. But what mindfulness is, is really just that practice is coming back into present awareness. And as you do it, it really changes the brain. I mean, the studies are pretty phenomenal. It changes the brain and you become more able to observe yourself having feelings in the future and also pausing between your reactivity and taking action. So mindfulness, I think, is great just because we're so busy now and with our cell phones practically glued to our bodies 24-7, that the, those moments of boredom, those moments of pausing are happening less and less. And so we have to fight to put them back into our lives because that's where self-reflection lives, is taking time to pause. 
Another way you can become self-aware is like taking an assessment, you know, learning about your work style, learning about how you approach working in a team. There's lots of great ones out there and it just gives you more data about yourself. And then the second part of self-awareness is starting to, to align how you see yourself with how others see you. And this is where, you know, you look at your performance review and how you saw your performance and how your boss saw your performance. It doesn't make them right. It's just data on whether you guys are seeing the same things. And if you're not aligned, does it mean you need to share more and give more data and information? Does it mean that you're not looking at the same criteria? Are they missing information or only have a short view or a small, a limited view of what you're doing? You know, when we, when we hear other people's feedback, it gives us that chance to say, are we aligned? And if we're not, what's the cause of the misalignment? And there's, you know, sometimes we are misaligned, you know, like for teenagers, for example, because of where they are in their brain development, they tend to way overestimate their skills and abilities. And because they just, you know, teenagers neurologically pass through a slightly narcissistic state. It's part of healthy, normal human development. But it means that they think it's all about them and everybody else is wrong. And so when we have these moments of being out of alignment, sometimes it's an appropriate stage of life. And sometimes it's good feedback to go, oh, wait, others don't see me the same. So as we get grades, as we get performance reviews, as our friends sit us down and say, hey, there's something I need to talk to you about, it, it's data. But I think, I, and here's where I'm going to bring Brene Brown back into it. We have to be careful, though, who we align to. Someone has to earn the right to have an opinion about us that Come we listen to. So, you know, if this is where the internet can be so terrible, right? You can have somebody just a troll post a really mean comment and it shakes your sense of self, but have they earned the right to have that opinion about you? Mm, no. I listen to the opinions of people who I respect and who I have trust with and who I know get me. And then if they say, hey, Britt, there's something we wanna to talk to you about, I really wanna listen. But somebody who's met me for a few minutes or really doesn't have a, a real accurate sense of who I am or what I'm doing, I, I need to not overweigh that opinion. So we also have to be a little bit choosy in terms of aligning ourselves to the right pieces of data. You know, and then to one last point here, you know, I talk about leaders need to think about themselves. Once you get good at managing your own emotions and understanding how your self-perception relates to other people, then when you're in a leadership role, you can help other people do the same. So you can make sure you're helping them understand themselves and align to appropriate feedback. You can offer training, you can help coach them in emotional intelligence. And then the third area is the organization. Leaders in the organization are responsible for making sure that the organization itself has emotional intelligence, meaning it's checking in with itself, it's, it's assessing itself, it's comparing itself to some valid points. An organization can also have EQ with how it sets itself up to kind of navigate the world and its market and its customers' feedback. If you don't mind if we take a little bit of a segue here, because I think especially as we look at the organization, we are living in some unprecedented times with remote work, with distributed environments. I think leaders and individuals are being challenged to show up in a way in which we haven't been asked to do probably ever. Ever. What, what's your recommendation for leaders and us as individuals who are having to navigate this new space um, of either work from home, remote work, distributed teams, how can we foster, how can we solidify, how can we continue to ensure that we are building a high level of emotional intelligence within our organizations, even in this new normal? I'm going to answer that question in two parts. So after I do the first part, I may need you to ask me the question again, because I may forget. Okay. I'm going to get to the organization moving forward into this new world of work second. The first thing we need to talk about, though, is how burned out we all are in this moment. It says, you know, the research is showing that 89% of us have hit levels of burnout that have never been seen before. Burnout is an actual diagnosable medical state. And we get there after being in a state of exhaustion for an extended period of time. Bio biologically, we are wired that when, you know, I always go back to kind of who we are as a tribal species living 
on the plains, right? Our biology has not changed that much, even though the world around us has. So we are wired that if a, if a natural disaster blows through, like a hurricane or a flood or a fire, that we would be traumatized by it, but we would dig into our reserves, no matter how exhausted we were, to get through that disaster and get to the other side. And it turns out that biologically, that, that set of kind of our reserve tank that we can tap into is about six months worth of reserve. And if you think about natural disasters, six months after anything, things are starting to clean up. You're starting to recover. The community's starting to fix whatever got ruined. People have grieved. So we, we used up our tank a long time ago in this pandemic. And since then, we've been all been living on fumes. And what's insidious about burnout is that it comes on so slowly that by the time you realize you're burned out, you're too exhausted and apathetic to even care and so you then don't even have the energy to do the self-care that will pull you out of it. So there's three components to burnout. One is just literal exhaustion, emotional and physical. The second thing is that we have a decreased sense of accomplishment. So even though we're getting stuff done, we don't feel like we're getting anywhere. So this is what's happening all across the world. People are doing their jobs. They're doing a great job and they just don't care and they don't sense that they're getting anything done. And that's just a terrible feeling. And then the third thing is it, it's a self-protective measure, but our body dials down our ability to have empathy or compassion for others because we just have no more gas in the tank to give. You know, the, no more that whole GAF. I don't GAF anymore. There's no more Fs <laughs> to give, right? Um, and I don't know if you're, if you're watching TikTok right now, but this pug named Noodle and his bones are no bones day. If you haven't seen it, uh, you know, there's this pug and every day his owner picks him up and he either stands up and has bones or he collapses into his dog bed and it's a no bones day. It is getting trillions of followers because we are all hungering to be given permission to just rest. The only way out of burnout is rest. It's not starting a new job. It's having your vacation, it's resting, it's recovering. And the damage done with all of us work, staying home and having no access to the things that used to give us joy or that were fun and playful, going out to dinner, spending time with family, having a vacation, getting a pedicure, we were all denied that for well over a year and a half. And so I can't underscore enough like in what bad shape we all are. And so what it means in this moment of time is just having incredible care with each other. It means we all need to be leaning hard into resting and really making sure we're taking our weekends, really scheduling that vacation. Leaders need to mandate that. They need to make sure their people are resting and having a chance to recover. And after we do that for a while, then I think we can really engage in this question of how do we move into this new form of work in a productive way but right now, people are too tired to do it. They're, you know, we, to, to work in a remote way with each other, we're gonna have to think about new ways of communicating, new ways of creating inclusion, new ways of making sure voices are equally heard. There's still some things to solve, and, and I have no doubt we can solve them. There's definitely some best practices we can be using, but right now, we're too tired to do it well, so. I hereby give everyone, Dr. Britt, everyone gives, gives everyone a prescription to take some time off, schedule your vacations, get that bubble bath going, spend time in nature. Research shows that at least three times a week, 20 minutes minimum, nature actually helps heal us. I just can't underscore enough how much we all need that and that we should be leaning into that right now. And I just want to reemphasize the, the information that you're sharing with us is backed by research. It's backed by data. I mean, this oh, is not yeah. this is not stuff that you're pulling out of a, a magic hat. I mean, this is research-driven advice that we all need to heed. Absolutely. And I think, especially what I love about the timeliness of this conversation, is that we have to give ourselves the grace to take the pause. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I've heard from peers and colleagues is, you know, with this move to the virtual environment, there's not any baked in decompressed time, you know, in, in the physical space, you've got what we used to call the water cooler, 
you know, where you'd have the water cooler conversation, you could organically have conversations. And now with this move to, you know, whether it's Zoom or Microsoft Teams or, you know, whatever platform that you're using to, to work through, there's very rigid timeframes. And every minute is very productive based on the agenda of the meeting. And so just giving ourselves the grace to recharge, reset, recalibrate, so tremendously important right now. And I think the one last thing that I wanted to add and just kind of think through is the importance of putting together a long-term, sustainable self-care plan. Absolutely. Because we don't know how much longer we're going to be in this thing. We don't, we don't know how much longer. It's been, you know, 18 months. We talked about, you know, six months kind of being that threshold. But we don't know how much longer we're going to be in this. So it's even more imperative that we're taking the time to give ourselves that self-care plan. We're giving ourselves the space to recharge, recoup so we can have the highest likelihood of showing up as our highest and best self when we do come into these workspaces. I absolutely, absolutely love that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and now I, I do want to share a couple things that I've noticed about creating this new world of work. So there's some pros and cons that are happening here. One is, you know, we've gotten rid of all those stupid ways we were wasting time, the commute and dressing in professional clothes. We, we can have comfort. We can have things around us that we love. You know, for, for decades, we've been stripping humanity out of workplaces where people used to have an office that they could decorate and make their sense of safe space and home. And then everyone had a cubicle and they could still kind of decorate it. And then, no, you can't decorate anything. And now you get a table, whichever table is available when you walk in. You know, that doesn't make people feel very connected to their workplaces. And so I think one of the things that happened is we were all home, surrounded by things we love and our cats and our favorite foods and all the things that make us feel safe. And I think that was great. We also have to work harder on, I mean, Zoom fatigue is a, is a real thing because right now, you know, you're one inch tall and I'm one inch tall and we can't see each other below the shoulders. And while this is better than nothing, we are missing a lot of data. So if you and I were sitting in the same room and we could see each other's full bodies and all that, that, you know, body language, pheromones, all of it, our body actually is designed to read people in person. And so we want to find the right balance of when people need to be together in a physical space for team building, for bonding, for building trust, for tackling some difficult conversations or some important decisions. That all should still happen in person. Some learning should happen in person. And then we leverage technology for all of the things it brings, but it misses some stuff too. So as we think about this new hybrid workplace, we still have to think about when do we bring people in, in person? When do we let people be remote? We're all in way too many meetings. We're over meeting. We need to cut back on meetings and use asynchronous tools for getting some work done. There's a really wonderful opportunity here to kind of redefine what work is and how it gets done. The other thing that I would say, which is people are kind of missing in this conversation, top three reasons people are quitting their jobs right now. Burnout number one, 40%. Number two, organization going through too many changes, which is really a function of burnout. People are just too tired. It's 34%. Number three, is acts of discrimination, 20%. One of the things that happened is that people like you and me, women and people of color, we got a break from all the microaggressions not being in the office. You know, we miss the water cooler moments, but it's also that water cooler is where people say things under their breath or do some of the nasty, either intentional or insensitive stuff because they're clueless that make people feel unsafe in the workplace. So the other thing that leaders need to be looking at is what are you doing to truly create a safe work environment that where diversity, inclusion, belonging is all really prioritized, that you really care about psychological safety. And we can't get there without addressing systemic oppression and privilege. And so it means we gotta be leaning into those conversations and really looking at who's leaving and why are they leaving. Oh, I see, we about to get into the sauce today. Oh. I, I, I see you bringing the heat today, Britt. <laughs> we ain't playing no games in the arena we today. We no games, nuh-uh. Okay, so now that we've taken it here, because I wanna, I wanna put this back in slow motion for our listeners. Okay. You have a lot of great resources that are available online for people to check out. One of the things that you're talking about, 
uh, are spoken about in addition to the topic of psychological safety is the link between trauma and emotional triggers. And so if I'm picking up what you're putting down on reason number three why people are leaving their workspace, folks are tired of dealing with microaggressions. They're tired of dealing with toxic work environments. And so how would you encourage our listeners to navigate these challenges as they resurface, as they continue to permeate in this new work environment? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is you're not crazy. It's happening. So 75% of workers in the U.S. experience workplace bullying, either as a witness or as a victim. So it's either happening to them, most common victims are the top performers and they're being taken down by somebody, or they're witnessing it in others and it's not being addressed. So either way, it's making people not feel safe in the work environment. Workplace bullying is actually four times more common than racial discrimination and sexual harassment combined, both of which are already awful and need to be addressed because they particularly target people of color and, and, and women and men. You know, um, It's not just a women thing. So it's something that we need to acknowledge and companies have policies, but they're not necessarily really addressing the damage that's done and really taking it seriously. The other thing that we need to pay attention to is bosses. 57% of people who leave, leave because of a bad boss. And the group that's remaining, a third considered leaving. So bad bosses can create a really uncomfortable work environment sometimes intentionally, most of the time because they're just clueless. People get promoted to be a boss just because they were a good individual contributor, but, but creating a work environment for other people is a whole nother skill set. Gallup says only 10% of workers have the innate ability to be a good manager. And so most of the time people are promoted and they, they aren't given the training or they aren't giving the skill set so that they can be good at it. And then there is this insidious group of managers and I, and I hate to say that this stat is so high, but research shows that 30% of bosses are toxic, meaning they are intentionally engaging in ways to undermine and harm the people that report to them. Oftentimes because they're threatened. They're threatened by a top performer and they just engage in this insidious stuff. It's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. It happens in the workplace. And so I just want to say you're not crazy. Leaders, you need to do a better job. But if it's happening to you, here are the things that I, I recommend. First is take care of yourself. You know, you're, you're, you're under attack and everything about your biology is going to go into survival mode. And any old trauma you have is going to get stimulated and triggered. And sometimes it makes us see something as worse or more threatening than it actually is, depending on how tender that old wound is or what your body's kind of connecting the dots around. So one thing is to kind of to get to know your old wounds. This is where journaling or therapy is really helpful, is you can kind of explore what's happened to me in the past and what, what sense did I make out of that and what ways do I protect myself. You know, when you get hijacked, when you go into that fight or flight state, what what sends you there? What are the what are the things that make you go there? And I believe I call it a fire drill. I believe that we should all be armed with knowing a that we're having a hijack, recognize the symptoms in your body, and then having a few things you can do to take care of yourself. Because when we get hijacked by our amygdala, what happens is we've gone into pure survival mode. And interestingly, our body, our body is biologically designed to take the thinking or logical brain offline, and it also takes away self-awareness. So think about a car accident. If you're in a car accident and you're badly damaged, you're, those parts of your brain go offline because it's not in your best interest to realize how damaged your body is. So it takes away self-awareness. That's great if you're truly in a life-threatening situation. An amygdala hijack is when all that happens and you're not in a life-threatening situation and we can lose our ability to think logically. We can sometimes react in a way that will come back to haunt us later. This is where good people do dumb things because they literally have lost the filter. Um, so knowing kind of things you can do to get yourself calm, get out of the situation, breathing, moving, writing, even just writing down how you feel. I'm so pissed off right now. I can't believe he said that. I'm so angry. It hurts. 
All of that kind of brings the thinking brain back online. And having that tool set is something that we all need in, in life. We can't always control how other people treat us, but we can learn how to manage ourselves through it. So there's that immediate reaction. And then there's your long-term, like, what am I going to do about it? Do I have a difficult conversation with this person and give them feedback? Maybe they didn't know. Maybe they're insensitive or clueless. You know, I know right now there's a huge awakening in the world around what privilege is. And when you are raised with privilege, you truly have these big old fat blinders on and it's really hard to see what you don't know. And it's painful when those blinders get ripped off. So sometimes people need some education. Then you also need to have policies and practices in place that regardless of why it happened, even if someone was clueless, it's not allowed to happen. There's consequences for it happening. It's stopped. So there's all these sets of tools. And then I, I would say in the third thing is if this is happening to you at work, you're not crazy, use some tools to get yourself through it. If you see hope that the perpetrator cares or the organization wants to stop it, it may be worth staying and seeing how it turns out. It's also okay to get the hell out of there, especially now. Like now is a great time to find a new job. <laughs> so if you're feeling like you're not safe physically or emotionally in work, go find someplace where they care about you and where these things matter and make this part of your interview process. Find out what they do around toxic environments. How are their managers trained? What do they know about psychological safety and how they create it? Really the power right now is on the employee side. So this is a great time to go and really interview from the side of, I want to find the environment that best supports me in doing my best work. What's really cool about what you just shared is, I think particularly for our audience uh, in our breakline community, veterans, women, people of color who are transitioning into the tech industry, this is one of the number one piece of it, pieces of advice that we share with them as they're going through the interview process, is this is absolutely a two-way transaction. And so, although the company is evaluating you as a potential applicant or a potential employee, it is also tremendously incumbent upon you as the future employee to weigh things like culture, to weigh things like fit, to ask those tough questions around how is the organization intentionally building a space of personal and professional growth, but also psychological safety. And I think those are all questions that, at least speaking for myself, we may have taken for granted pre-pandemic, but I think now as we are beginning to see the importance of finding places and spaces that allow us to show up as our highest and best self, this has to be a question that's top of mind as we're going through this journey and through this process. So I love the fact that you resurfaced that for us, especially as our listeners are kind of going through and navigating their own professional transitions. Absolutely. And I would say one more thing about it. You know, I, I came from a pretty abusive childhood and that definitely harmed me and scarred me in ways. And I had one job where I had a boss who just hit all those triggers. You know, the way she conducted herself, just it just really hit on a bunch of those things for me. So at first I was in therapy trying to manage these triggers, just even the way she looked you know, she looked a lot like my mom. And so it just was bringing up stuff for me. I spent a lot of time in therapy, like, okay, what's getting triggered? What are my tools? How do I navigate this? And I was finding my way through it. But at one point I was like, this is taking up all of my time. I'm spending all of my time and energy either on therapy or alcohol trying to get through this situation. It's not worth it. Yeah, I could probably evolve so that someone who's really triggering for me, I can handle. But it wasn't worth it. There was other better jobs out there and not a good use of my time. I would say the first third of the time dealing with that was good learning on my part. It helped me evolve a little bit. And then after that, it was like, this isn't worth it. I would be better served finding an environment that didn't trigger me so much. And I'm really glad I did. It ended up being, you know, that's actually when I moved to lynda.com and it really changed so many things about my career. So I think it's just important for us to each take personal responsibility what am I bringing to this situation and what's my history here? I've got to learn to manage that and use tools and therapy. There's a lot of amazing, powerful healing techniques to help us heal from trauma 
EMDR, brain spotting technique, and cognitive processing therapy are three things I would encourage any of your listeners who have personal trauma to explore. And then separate from that, you have to find that balance of do I stay or do I go? And after a certain amount of investment, just find the place that better serves you. And especially right now, it's a good time to look. So I just wanna, I wanna thank you for eloquently sharing not only the impact that the research has had on your professional life, but I think it was really cool just to get insight into how on a very personal level, you've leveraged the research and the bodies of work that exist in order to help you navigate and sustain your career, you've had a tremendously successful career. And once again, for those who have not checked out your LinkedIn learning course, I would encourage everyone to check that out. You've written multiple books, Wired to Grow, Wired to Resist, Wired to Connect. I would encourage our listeners to check those out as well. I want to leave you with the last word. And if, if you had a recommendation or a piece of advice for two demographics. First, for the leaders who have a responsibility to their teams, to their organizations, to their corporations, to lead in a genuine and authentic way with emotional intelligence. What's your words of wisdom for that demographic? And then for all of the individuals who may be listening and trying to figure out what the right next step is for them in their career, What's your advice for those individuals as well? Okay, great question. I'll take the leaders first. You know, I would just say to leaders that the biggest mistake leaders make is if their bottom line profits are good, they don't tend to look at where they could be better. You know, if there's not, if, if, if the train isn't wrecking, if they're not, lever, you know, if they're not hemorrhaging money, they're like, we're great. And I would say that shouldn't be your only criteria. You need to be looking at turnover rates. You need to be looking at employee engagement scores. You need to be looking at exit surveys and you need to be looking at complaints. That tells you the real health of your organization or even helps you identify pockets that need attention. And then I would say, no matter how profitable you are, if you fix some of these things, you're going to be 10 X more profitable and you're going to have, you know, the cost to replace an employee is 50 to 250% of their salary plus benefits. It's much higher than executives think. So I encourage them to just do the math. You know, like you're leveraging more money than you realize. And then the third thing I would say is it's absolutely all fixable. You know, I have seen people learn what psychological safety is and how to create it and turn around and do it. And the organization's culture just shifts dramatically. It doesn't take a lot. It just takes some focus effort. And if you invest in the right learning solutions and the right conversations, you're gonna see huge shifts pretty quickly. And I would also say, this is what I do as a career. I help organizations assess their org and like put in place the right kind of leadership and management training programs to shift the culture. So if you need help with it, give me a call. That's what I do professionally. And the results are pretty astounding. For individuals, I would just reiterate some of the things we've already talked about, like self-awareness, check in with yourself. How am I doing? How do I feel? Is this serving me? Am I, am I set up to be my best self? Am I set up to learn and grow and, and achieve my potential? And if not, I promise you there's a place out there that cares about that. There are so many companies now that really are getting it and they're really waking up go find those companies. The ones that aren't are going to, I mean, honestly, in this grace resignation, there's entire companies and industries that are about to implode and shut their doors because they're not waking up. Eventually they'll wake up. Eventually they'll hit a pain point that makes them listen. But I would just say that one of the things we do as individuals is sometimes when we're living through something hard, at first we know it's something hard. And then this insidious thing starts to happen where we start to think that Maybe we don't deserve any better, or maybe there isn't anything better, or maybe this is as good as it gets. And we start to participate and internalize the conversation. And I just want to say, step out of that. 
get away for a few days. This is why vacations help. We get away from the environment that's making us think that way. Check in with people who love you and who get you. I, one of the best moves I ever had was, uh, was dinner. This was actually when I was still trying to deal with that toxic boss. And I went to dinner with my good friend, Dana. And he was like, Britt, you are too big to be dealing with this crap <laughs> on a daily basis. And I had lost sight of that for myself. And just him looking me in the eye saying, you deserve better. You're worthy of more. Don't accept this. It just woke me up. And so I think having lunch with the people who love us is really important. And being that for somebody else, when you see it happening to them and you see the light going out of their eyes is saying, hey, you can do better than this. This is not, this is not where you should be. And so I think those are the things that help us motivate and help us find the right place. Well, folks, you heard it here first. Britt, that was an absolute master class. I personally just feel inspired and empowered in this moment. So I cannot wait for our community to hear this conversation. This has been an absolute pleasure. And I just, I just want to reemphasize one more time for all of our listeners. If you have not seen um, the great body of work that Britt has, not only on LinkedIn Learning, but also through her through her company, please do check it out because I think now more than ever, it's important for us as individuals, but also as organizations to take stock and take inventory, to do those check-ins, to make sure that we're not experiencing burnout because of that potential that you talked about at the beginning of the conversation. No one wants to show up and not do their best work. No one wants them to show up and not feel good about the work they're doing. So you have left our listeners with some outstanding tools to add to their tool bag. And on behalf of our entire community, I would just like to say thank you. Thank you, Kenny. I am so honored to be one of your guests and the work that you're doing is really important. And we are all in this together. So pass it on, let's all help each other out and we're moving toward a better future. I really believe that. All right, folks. Well, if you love what you heard today, I just need you to do one of three things. If you can hit that like button, if you hit that subscribe button, or if this really touched your spirit, we'd love if you could leave us a review just so we can keep getting the message out there and sharing this great content. Folks, once again, this is Kenny Vaughn signing out from the Breakline HQ with the doctor, Britt Andreata. Thank you all for your time, and we are wishing you all a blessed day.